I want to try and help us think that true Christian mentoring leads to difficulty, not ease. If you think about it, there's so many different types of mentors out there, right? And, and if you talk to someone who does business, like it's someone who promotes themselves as having succeeded and made millions or billions of dollars. Or in mama mentoring, maybe the moms can associate with this, you always, it's always the person who's like, here's my perfect children. Here, do my method of parent raising so you can have babies who don't cry at night like me. Or, um, you know, if kids want to do gymnastics, you're going to find someone who's won a gold medal. Or someone, maybe, they, maybe not that level, but they can do a perfect flip. You find someone who's really good at it. And then we have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ existed in a podunk town, went around in a subjugated country, and was killed shamefully on a cross in defeat. All his disciples fled from him. That's a pretty pitiful story, isn't it? Except we all know, as we celebrated last week, and we celebrate every Sunday, that's not the end of the story, because three days later, he rose from the grave, showing he had victory over death. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Catch that? He said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He believed and he knew there was greater joy on the other side of that suffering. And he calls us then to take up our crosses as well. So I'm trying to get us to think, I think, or I'd argue that Paul is trying to get us to think here in 1 Thessalonians, that the mark of a successful disciple is not great success. Not necessarily large churches or a discipleship program, bar none, that everyone wants to follow, or much fruitful ministry. The mark of a faithful disciple is one who suffers well. That's the kind of mentor that we need, and that's the kind of people that we need to become. Um, if you haven't already, please open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you can see there, we're going to be in verses 13 through 16. This is the message of saying, is, the name of the message is obeying God's word when it hurts, when it's hard, when it's difficult. Uh, if you recall, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians is all about Paul being thankful for them. His, him saying he, how much he was thankful for them and for what God had done in their life. We talked about how they were a baby church when Paul left, but they proved to be very strong and resilient. And he was reminding them that suffering was a part of that faithful life. Chapter 2 then focuses more on the example of the ministry. So verses 1 through 5 is basically how the Thessalonians helped verify the truth of the gospel when they saw the missionaries' lives. Verses 6 through 12 was Paul saying, okay, and, and you saw how we ministered to you in kindness and gentleness. And now he returns once more to the issue of suffering and difficulty, but with a little bit of spin, saying, here's why you should keep enduring. Here's why you know it was true, and here's why you shouldn't give up. 
if you're taking notes today, uh, the theme we're going for is to try and explain how the Word of God can open your eyes or it can judge your heart. So we should thank God for every act of obedience we have. The Word of God has the ability to open our eyes or it has the ability to judge our hearts. And so we want to thank God for all the obedience that we have. Verses 13 through 17 Read along with me. I'm sorry, 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you heard it from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are on in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Again, the word of God can open your eyes or judge your hearts. So thank God for the obedience. Verse 13 is trying to encourage us then to believe that acceptance is God's work. Acceptance of God's word is a result of God's work. God did it. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word um, the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Verse 13, Paul introduces once again his thankfulness. Paul's thankful. And, and notice, you know, he doesn't just thank them. He's thanking God for them. In chapter 1, verse 4, we saw brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We talked then about the doctrine of election, that God predestining who would believe before the foundation of the world means we give God the credit and the glory. He is the one who opens our eyes to believe the word. And once again, at the end of verse 13, he says, it's at work in you believers. Why did you accept it? because it's at work in you believers. The Bible's work makes you believe the Bible. It's the old adage Charles Spurgeon used to say, I have no reason to defend the Bible any more than I have to defend a lion. I just let it out on people. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater tool to change someone's heart than the word of God. The word of God changes people. And Paul is very thankful that they received the word of God. He's thanking not just um, in God in general, but he's thanking that they received it. The word received 
doesn't just mean here, right? You know all kinds of times, you, you know when you're having that conversation with somebody and they're describing something to you and you're thinking what you have to do next. Maybe they're even telling you to do something and instead of listening to the whole explanation, you've already, like as soon as they said something, you start listening and thinking about what you have to do next that you stop listening along the way. You, you know that thing in one ear, out the other? How that happens all the time. And you walk away and you're like, what did I just hear? I have no idea. Embarrassing, right? That's not what's being described here. He uses two verbs, you notice, in verse 13. He says, you heard from us. You received, you heard, you accepted. Those come together to say they brought it into themselves. They approved it. They confirmed it was right. They took that preaching into their minds. They actively listened to the truth. And when they did that, they recognized it not simply as an opinion. This is not just one more speaking head, not just one more thought from a different viewpoint. This is the word of the creator. It's interesting. There are a number of people today calling themselves progressive Christians. It's just a new term for old liberalism. Just the same things, always repackaged every few years. And these group of people want to say that the Bible was just a group of Christians' attempt to understand God at that time, but we have to progress beyond that. That's why they're called progressives. We have to figure out today, as 21st century Christians, what we should believe, and it just so happens to look like everything the world is telling us to believe. Isn't that interesting? Always like, oh yeah, you just want me to believe what everyone else believes. But the Bible does not allow for that. The Bible claims to be the everlasting words of God that never change, that are always powerful. And Paul recognized as he wrote throughout Scripture that he was writing and speaking not just the, the words of an important teacher, but the very words of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, as the Corinthians often did, or someone thinks he's spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's very bold. You want, you want to be a... He says, if anyone is mature, he needs to say, the words I'm writing right now are the very commands of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21, Peter says that scripture is certain. He says at the end of John, in John 4, 6, to reject the teaching that John was bringing was to reject God. The Bible doesn't allow us to, like, pick and choose. One commentator writing on this said, where the word of God is welcomed with obedient faith, there the power of God is at work. We have to welcome the word with faith. And we thank God that he's the one making that happen. I, I believe we all know the famous work and activity of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Before his time in 1517, the whole continent of Europe was under the stranglehold of the Roman Catholic Church, denying many beautiful teachings of God's word, in many ways causing conflict. They denied so much of salvation by faith alone. 
that was later became important. And Martin Luther uh, was the first one who was really able to survive. Other reformers had attempted to come before him, but they were killed or silenced or arrested and exiled. Martin Luther got away with it. And he preached and he preached and he preached. And the gospel returned and people were saved and so thankful. And famously, he wrote, I simply taught. I preached and I wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. When the word of God is used to affect someone's life, not our creative endeavors, not our manipulation and trying to convince them, not our new tactics. Who gets the glory? God. He did everything. Accepting God's word is always a result of God's work. So let, let me think, make us think of two possible applications, ways that we as Christians can apply this. First, notice Paul's thanks here. What kinds of things do we thank God for? I don't know about you, but <laughs> I often thank God for success, for blessings. When, when, I, when I think of my children, I thank God for giving my children comfort and, and help. I, I thank God for making this church, you know, have the suffering level decrease. Paul is instead thankful that the people of Thessalonica so accepted God's word, they were willing to suffer for it. He was thankful that they were suffering. Are we as thankful for hard times, especially endurance through hard times, as we are for ease and good things? Do we pray, Lord, thank you for Anna Jean, for Anna Jean, who comes and is continually involved in the service and ministry of this church, though in a lot of ways she struggles and her memory is disappearing. Talk to her about that sometimes. Or Clifford, who brings Bernie with all of his difficulties, right, and continues to endure because he believes church is important. Or any other examples you can think of of people who have had difficulties in relationships, difficult physical matters, difficult financial matters, and they say, I believe this is still true and I'm going to endure. But secondly, so we've got thankfulness. How, what are we thankful to God for? And secondly, how do you and I respond when God's word is being read or explained to us? Again, we exist in a time where we can hear, hear millions of different voices Right now, you could put in some, you know, earphones and just completely ignore me and just go search for a TED talk about anything. It's probably even something that I'm talking about, and you can probably hear a completely different perspective. And that's fine. I'm not saying I'm so great, but the question is, when it comes to the Word of God, how do we respond? When Pastor Yuri gets up to preach, do we hear just the words of man or the very words of God? As close as we actually reflect what the scripture says. The scripture is the word of God. Do you and I believe it? And do we believe it enough 
to obey it. We'll come back there. Because if we believe God's word, we can't just hear it, right? We have to live it. And that actually leads to more of the uncomfortable part. Verse 14. Rejection is the result of imitation. Or rejection due to God's word is a result of God's imitation. We're imitating him. It's easy to be rejected for a lot of things. I'm talking about being rejected for being a Christian. Verse 14 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did the Jews. Verse 14 starts with the word for, that so important word for. And this is asking the question, how did Paul know the word of God was at work? It's easy to say, well, someone's a Christian because, oh, I say I love Jesus, and then their life actually is completely opposite. You, you think of Judas being in the upper room and how no one suspected him. Many people have fake lives. How do you know someone actually believes this? Paul's saying, oh, you followed the examples of people. You truly believe because you followed the example, not just of Paul, but of normal Christians who suffered. The phrase is that genuine offspring bear the traits of their parents. Even my son Kenton, who looks more like my sister and her husband than he looks like me and my wife. He, like, people are always confused by that. But there's so many traits that come out, right? He does the things that we do. He learns mannerisms and repeats them. We copy those who we are from. And so the Christian tradition is one of suffering. Notice, as he describes their, the definition of the church, He's defining the churches. Look down in your Bible, if you would. He says, You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So three parts. They're of God, they're in Christ, and they're of Judea. Biggest and most important thing, they are defined by God. Because the word church in Greek, we, we think of church, and I think too often we think of building. It means gathering. Um, but then it was just all kinds of gatherings. People gather for all kinds of things. They gather to be at the same life stage. They gather because they're all interested in model cars. They gather because they all like playing the same video games or they like going to the same sports. And some people are religiously devoted to those gatherings. Like you, you think of all kinds of examples. But here, saying these gatherings are not defined by common interest, but by common worship. And not just some general idea of God either. Like, you can go to a lot of places and talk about God, 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 and everyone's like, yeah, God is great. And you're like, Jesus Christ. And suddenly people are like, oh, um, you okay? You're, you're talking about a specific kind of God, aren't you? Right? Like you, I don't know if you ever noticed that with neighbors or friends. Like it's very easy. I, I remember being living in, even in the South, and people were always very comfortable with God. But even in the South, Jesus Christ, suddenly, that, that, that defines it. The church and all its unity 
is defined by knowing who God is and following his expectations. A Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British English, oh, he wasn't English, but great British preacher in London, said, the fact is, however, there can be, there is no unity apart from truth and doctrine. And it is a departure from this that causes division and breaks unity. Our, our definition of a unified church is not that we like each other, though I hope that's true. <laughs> it's not that we have the same politics, though I think Christians should, Christians should lead towards certain politics and deny certain other things. But what should align us is our beliefs about who God is and what he wants us to do. And it is disagreement and separation from God's word that breaks that unity. But those churches in Judea, they suffered, right? Their neighbors did not like Jesus very much. That They crucified him, right? And so they didn't like his messengers who spoke about him very much. I found this list of ways that the early church was persecuted. I'll throw it up there. There were verbal abuses, seizure of property, beatings, murder plots, stoning, unjust arrests, imprisonments, exile, execution. Sometimes today we, we, we limit what level of persecution, like, and yeah, like, unless you're being killed for your faith like, they, like the people of ISIS were doing, you know, that's not real persecution. Well, maybe, like there's different levels of it. So yeah, maybe not, but you could just be silenced and told your religion is not acceptable in this workplace. Or you need to get on board with this policy. I don't care what your religion says. The churches suffered. Then, time moved on, some of these came in the hands of the Romans. Much of that early persecution was from Jew against Jew, but this is exactly what Jesus prepared us for. He said in Luke 12, 53, they will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He said, I, do you think, in verse 51, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The same thing happened among this church in Thessalonica. The people started having troubles in Acts 17, First from the Jewish residents in Acts 17, verse 5, as Paul is going around preaching, it said, The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the whole city in uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the Jews started, but they grab other people. A mob starts. Huge issues are going through. The people are being Persecuted so much that Paul has to take off and leave. Just a few years later, in AD 64, Emperor Nero of Rome would blame Christians for a great fire that was set off and burned half the city. He had those Christians then fed to dogs or crucified or had their bodies burned as torches for his games. 
it was said at the time, if the water does not flow freely, kill the Christians. If there is fire, kill the Christians. Everything was blamed on the Christians. Believing the word of God resulted in rejection and persecution from family, from friends, and from neighbors. And you know what hasn't happened? It hasn't changed in all these millennia, right? There is one person I think you need to know. Um, There's a man named Nicholas Merriweather. He's a professor of public, in a public university in Ohio, a small school called Shawnee State. And he was in a lecture, and he called a transgender student by the wrong pronoun. And this student got very angry at this professor. And he was like, okay, hey, I will call you by whatever name you want. Um, that's fine, but I'm, I'm not going to call you by this pronoun that you desire. I'll, I'll call you, just tell me what your name is, I'll call you that. Well, the student wasn't satisfied and went to the administration, and the administration um, came against him with fines and just punishments of various kinds. They tried to force him to comply with the school's new pronoun policy. So he, as a good Christian man, was like, okay, you know what? I understand that. Let me seek a religious exemption. I believe this is against my religion. I cannot live by lies. And that would be a lie to do so. He was denied that religious exemption, so he went and sued. Not for his sake, but for the sake of truth. He would... (coughs) Sorry, a fly just... Or something just flew in my mouth. (laughs) I think I'm okay. Um, He got some legal help, and he forced a settlement with the school. They said, you're right. This violates your free exercise of religion. These are your religious rights. And and he won, and praise God for that. But what I think was good is he was willing to suffer. You you know, even if you think you're going to win, that is not a battle you want to go into. And he saw, here is a line to honor Christ, and I must not cross it. Again, a possible application for us to consider that every one of us wants to see God working in us, don't we? Like, we want to see change. We want to see growth. We want to see us be better Christians. But are we willing to see ourselves suffer? Into, are we willing to see ourselves change into someone who suffers? Yeah, we want to see change. Are we willing to see ourselves change into a sufferer? Because that is what it means to follow Christ. Someone who suffers for what we believe in. And are we willing to be like Christians around the world who are suffering in that way? See, there's great comfort in knowing you're not the only one in times of suffering, isn't it? One of those prideful moments that comes up Often when you're talking with people like, I'm the only one who has ever had this kind of problem. And you're listening to me like, I know so many other people who've had that problem. Or maybe not your specific problem, but ones like it. And there's actually a great comfort when we strip away our pride and say, yeah, I might suffer for my Christianity, but this has been the history of Christians. This is happening now. But then we need to ask ourselves beforehand, Do I believe this book enough that I'm willing to suffer for what it says like so many others have? See, some people want to make a difference between a 
head theology versus a heart theology. And, and I get that. Um, but really, I would argue the difference should be a head theology versus a feet theology. It, it's what you might know versus what you're willing to do. Do you just talk the talk or are you willing to walk the walk? Do you believe it enough to actually obey it? And so today, one of the questions we exist in many places in our culture is what um, John Stone Street, who's the director of the Colson Center, says we need to have a theology of getting fired. What are you willing to be fired for? Christians have to choose, as happening more and more, between our jobs and our Christian convictions, between favor from people or what the Bible says. And we need to look at God's word and Try and think, in today's world, what are the red lines I will not cross? And often those have to come beforehand, right? Because before you get there, or else you're like, oh, well, maybe that line moves a little bit. Think. They tell you to lie. Well, like, what's a, well, just, you know, is this a lie? Is this a mistruth? Or is this a lie? And I won't do that. They tell you to do something that is compromising, they tell you to live by a lie and calling certain people a gender they are not. Then one of the things John Stone Street calls us to do is say, how can we help each other? If we're actually going to say that, can we as Christians say that if my brother or sister loses their income because they're willing to live by truth, how are we as a church willing to come alongside and help them in the midst of that? Stand firm, but also be prepared if they lose. See, God does not allow us to separate our religious lives from our secular work. They're all in submission to him. We do all we do, whether it is parenting or making proclamations in front of people like a sermon or just working for a post office. Everything is supposed to be done in submission to Christ. And it's worth holding the line because verse 14 through 16 teaches us that in the end, Jesus wins. Third part we see here, the rejectors of God's word results in God's wrath. Rejection results in wrath. Rejection of God's word results in God's wrath. It says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. He starts off, remind him in verses 14 through 15, that they suffered from the Jews just like Jesus did. They suffered from the Jews just like Jesus did. And so we kind of have to ask the question, who killed Jesus? Right? Because notice, you look in your Bible, he said, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now notice, Paul says the word killed, not crucified, because who actually put them up on, who put them up on the cross? The Romans, right? But 
the Jewish leaders were essential in condemning him and bringing him and pressuring him to be killed. But also remember Peter's famous sermon. Right after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has landed. He goes up and preaches to people. And in Acts 2.23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23. And I was saying it, so let me just clarify again. He's saying that he was killed by the hands of lawless men, but this was according to the plan of God. So it was God's plan to have his son killed for us. Now, to anyone here who has forgotten the gospel, sometimes we've got to remember it. Maybe you never quite understood it properly. It's easy to, to do church stuff for a long time and to forget the fact is that Jesus wasn't defeated in death. The Bible says that was always God's plan. He was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew his son was going to live a perfect life and then die a shameful death. And he died because of our lack of listening to his word. Like the good God gave message after message. Prophets came. He created a perfect kingdom with perfect laws. And you know what people did? They saw the don't step on the grass sign and they stepped on it. How much of us too you hear you're not supposed to do something, and that voice just creeps in your head, do it, do it, do it. And we do. We do not love God with all our heart, soul, and minds. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We seek number one first. Number one is me, and that ends so badly. But God planned for Jesus to die. And he and his son in the eternal Godhead, along with the Holy Spirit, planned before the foundation of the world to justly punish Jesus for our sins, even when Jesus had done nothing wrong, so that we could be forgiven. And when we believe that, we know, like he raised from the dead, as we talked about last week, knowing that he won, he was accepted. Jesus died according to the plan of God, but he was killed by wicked men. It was God's plan. Wicked men still did it. Not for godly reasons. God did it to save us. They did it because they hated him. And you know what? He wasn't the first one they hated. Notice it says in your Bible again, the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Jesus said in Matthew 27, or sorry, 23, 37, Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. They have evil desires. And the language here is very strong, isn't it? He's saying, Paul is saying that the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God. They oppose all mankind. This is very strong language, but it's not anti-Semitic. 
Some people have used that over the centuries, but we got to recall, use scripture, interpret scripture. Paul himself was a Jew. All the original disciples, apostles, were Jewish men. And Paul even said he so loved his fellow Jews that in Romans 9, verse 1 through 3, he would be willing to be damned if he could for their salvation. He loved them. He can't even logically mean all Jews because many followed Jesus. Paul is saying that even in Romans 4.23, Jesus was not just killed by the Jews. He was killed by our sin. So when Paul says here, the Jews, he's not referring to all Jews, but specifically the leadership of that time, the religious leadership that turned and turned over Jesus to the Romans and those that persisted in their unbelief. He's talking about those who ran him out of Thessalonica. It's those who displeased God and opposed others from hearing it. And what's key, too, in remembering here, verse 16, is their sin is hurting others. It's one thing just to deny God yourself. It's another thing to hurt others. It says, how do they displease God? How do they oppose all mankind? Verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This attack on God's people prevented the gospel from going out. And Paul makes very clear the gospel is the only way of salvation. Romans 10, 14, and 15 says, How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Romans 10, 14 and 15. Like, so this, you guys said, this blows apart the idea of victimless sin. We often get to that, like, oh, you know, it's, it's just a victimless sin. It isn't hurting anybody. But by driving the apostles out, by having them arrested, and even at times Christians were killed by the governments, they're not just hurting the apostles or the missionaries. They're hurting their own children and their neighbor's children who will not hear that there is salvation from their horrible sin. They're, block they're blocking the path of salvation. Now, in the scheme of God's sovereignty, of course, you can't stop God. We were even talking about the hound of heaven earlier, right? God is not stopped, but their intention is to stop him. And so because of these desires, verse 16b says their judgment is sure so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. The wrath of God is an uncomfortable doctrine, especially for us in 21st century America. We just, we want to love people. We don't like conflict. And, and wrath seems kind of scary. Yet, Wayne Grudem, writing about this, says, 
Oh, let me get, I'll get there in a second. Yet if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, and it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God is good, so he has to hate things that are evil. God hates sin. Again, he says, it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if he were a God that did not hate sin. He would then be a God who delighted in sin or at least wasn't troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. One of my greatest fears is someone would come along and hurt my children. Something I pray for safety for them all the time. And could you imagine someone came and they hurt my children they were arrested, and they go before the judge, and the judge starts to go, you know, this guy's had a really tough life, you know, and, uh, and can't you just let it go? Like, I know, you're, you know, your children have been scarred for life or have been killed, but can't you just, just let it go? We're just, you know, we're going to pretend like it never happened. I think all of us would be like, that is wrong. Like, what happened was wrong, and by saying it was okay, hey, you're, you're saying it was okay. How dare you? God cannot be a good God and look upon the evil done, especially upon children, and just ignore it. That's why he says, to cause one of the least of these little ones of mine, these children of mine, to sin, it would be better for him to take a millstone and throw it around his neck and be dropped into the sea. But notice, look down in your Bibles again. It says, right at that little dash, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. At last. I think perhaps we often have the wrong idea when we think of wrath, because we think of explosive anger. Sadly, too many fathers you know, have the image of just that, you, you did that one thing too many times and they just explode at you. A lot of domestic abuse, husbands against wives, wives against husbands. A boss who just, you drop that paperclip one too many times and they just explode at you in anger. And that's the idea we think of. But that's not God's wrath. No, God's wrath is controlled. And it's not just in the New Testament that we see this, but the Old Testament gives us an image of it constantly. God waits until wickedness gets so bad that the people deserve judgment. Think of like the fact that Israel was sent to Egypt. Israel was promised the land and there were people living in that land already. And he said, you're going to have it. Like, but God, there are people here. Like what's going on with this? And in Genesis 15, 16, he says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God doesn't just send Israel to Egypt for the sake of having a cool Exodus story, though I'm sure that's part of it. God did want the Exodus. God took them away from those wicked people so that their wickedness could get worse, so that they could be judged as they should. And those people persisted in their hatred of God. They even have opportunities to hear from Abraham about the true God. 
Had they repented, God would have spared them just like he spared the Ninevites when they had the preaching of Jonah, right? They heard the preaching of Jonah and God spared them. But the Canaanites didn't. R.A. Torrey writes, this is the iniquity of any people should become so full, their rebellion against God so strong and so universal, their moral corruption and debasement so utter, so pervasive, even down to the babies just born, as to make such treatment absolutely necessary in the interest of humanity. And this is exactly what happened in those nations in the Old Testament. New Testament's not different either. God is so patient. He waits and waits. But wrath has come upon them. This could be an understanding of perhaps judgment that would happen during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 30. Or it could be perhaps just pressures that were happening. Or it could just be this understanding that, hey, it's as good as done. God's final wrath on his day of judgment is coming. See, I think we naturally understand judgment is needed against those who prevent life-saving effort. Judgment is needed against someone who is preventing someone else to be saved. Many of you know the story of Terry Schiavo. Um, the, the story is being brought up again. The podcast and news program, The World and Everything in It from World Magazine, they're doing a special right now where they're going through in detail some of things that are wrong but illegal. And you'll recall back in 1990, 1990 on February 25th, Terry Schiavo collapsed and she experienced brain damage. She was in a kind of catatonic stage, but disagreements of how she was... Clearly, she needed food and water given to her intravenously. She was given a feeding tube for years. And for many years, her husband, Michael, uh, worked closely with her parents, Robert and Mary, to care for her. But then one day, Michael received a payout of $2 million for um, malpractice from one of the doctors. And shortly after that, he cut off his in-laws and stopped all the rehabilitation. It was a long fight, and in 2000, so 10 years after the accident, a judge finally ruled that Michael Schiavo um, had proven in court that his wife would have not wanted to be hooked up to a feeding tube. So they took her off, and she was going to die of dehydration and starvation over 10 days. And, And they made the claim that that was what she wanted and that, you know, she wasn't there mentally anymore even while her family is on the same side claiming, no, like she did respond. She was alive. Well, if you might recall, what blew this up in the media is a reporter went on the news and they're like, let's talk about this. And they're taking phone calls and someone calls in and says, oh, hi, yeah, I know a lot about this case. I was Michael's girlfriend while his wife was still in the hospital. And I heard him tell me, He never talked to his wife about what she would want if she died. And I was there when he would go and see her and she would respond to him. She would get up and look at him or she would turn or smile in face of him. And this whole thing got up and exploded in the news because here was a man who was trying to prevent saving care and was lying 
about some of the reasons. Uh, again, I would encourage you, like, there is much more to the story. You can listen to it. If you just search, search the world and everything in it, you can hear a series of newscasts they're doing on the subject. But there was, I think, a, a good response. People look at it and say, this is wrong. You're preventing life-saving care. She is still alive, according to these people. And eventually, she did die um, after a court battle back and forth for times. I want to try and say, how much more than those who prevent spiritual care to save someone's eternal soul? I think that puts the idea of wrath in perspective. We need to believe that God's righteous judgment is coming in his wrath. And it's not just something to be ashamed of, but something to praise God for. He is doing a good and righteous deed. And I think, Christians, this helps us in two ways. First off, you don't have to get revenge. It doesn't have to be in our hands when someone does wrong to us, when someone even prevents us from preaching the gospel to someone. You might have a family member who you're trying to say something to in their dying day, and you have another family member who is trying to block you at every turn. You don't have to fight them. You might want to push. Don't get me wrong. Don't give up right away either, but you don't have to seek revenge on them. God will handle it, freeing us instead to love our enemies, which might be insisting. I'm, no, I'm going to say these things to my dying mother. But it also reminds us, as we read these words, but by the grace of God go I. Like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We don't stand in our high and mighty porch thinking, I'm so great because why do we hear God's word? Because it was at work in us. Because we were chosen by God. But those who resist the gospel will pay a great price. That is a message we have to preach as well. This isn't choose your own God time, like choose your own adventure. This is a question of do we serve God? Again, we've seen today that the word of God can open your eyes or can judge you. So we have to obey. Acceptance is God's work. Rejection is the result of imitation. And rejecters result in God's wrath. So we must hear God's word because it's the difference between life and eternal judgment. Warren Wearsby, the great preacher, said, the way a Christian treats his Bible show how he regards Jesus Christ. He is the living word and the Bible is the written word, but they have the same essence. So would you rather have God's word than money? Psalm 19 says that the word meant more than all riches, more than thousands of gold and silver. Is the Bible worth more than our health, more than a life, more than our praise from the world, more than our praise from those who we love the most, perhaps? Christian, you need to read and devour the Bible, even the hard parts. 
dig into it so you might believe. And you might believe what matters in life. Let me pray. God in heaven.